Hey, Elixir Talk fans, it's Desmond with a quick announcement. Are you looking for an Elixir job that makes a real difference in people's lives? My company, Pay It Off, is hiring engineers to help borrowers pay off their student loans. Our intelligence engine simplifies the confusing world of student loans to give borrowers a trusted ally on their journey, lowering their monthly payments and saving them tens of thousands of dollars over the life of their loan. It's a dense domain, but very rewarding when you see the outcomes to individual borrowers. So come join our small team of experienced Erlang and Elixir programmers. We are a remote company, but can only hire U.S. residents at the moment. If you're interested, please email your resume to me at desmond at payitoff.io. Thanks so much, and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite stay-at-home podcast on the Elixir programming language and ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Chris. I am excited because they recently opened California beaches, so at long last, we can finally go surfing again. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I uh, definitely miss the outside, so I'm looking forward to the day where we can do that here as well. Well, not the surfing part, but, you know, the, like, going outside to nature part. So. Yeah, you're uh, you're looking a little grizzled, Chris. Yeah. Our, our listeners, <laughs> Chris is sporting a, a rather swarthy uh, beard. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty terrible. It's the best I can do. That's what I like to say about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there isn't much more to say on that. It's it's kind of an embarrassing moment, but I've kind of like completely stopped caring about what I look like in the last few weeks. Even though I've been doing like significantly more video calls, but um, mm-hmm. I'm just you know just going with it. Just embracing the the complete lack of grooming going on. Yeah. Uh, Good for you. I mean, you're right. It is kind of funny because we are all on video calls all day long. And (laughs) you think more people would invest in like light circles or just other Hollywood things to kind of present well on a screen. Yeah, I'm just relying on the Zoom, uh, like blur my face until it looks better trick, you know? Oh, yeah. At our company, we have virtual backgrounds. We do quite a bit of that. Yeah. What do you often have as your background? Well, that's the thing. I don't have anything. I just go outside and there's palm trees back there. So, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> long sigh. I don't, yeah, I, I kind of would love that in real life right now. So, it sounds very nice. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm bragging a bit, but it's also nice to be able to go outside. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I'm excited to be back. So, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about what we've got on the show today? Yeah, we have a pretty exciting, pretty exciting episode. Um, we have a special guest on the show, someone who's joined us a couple times in the past now, uh, at least twice. Someone who needs no introduction, but I'll provide one anyway. He's the founder of um, a company called Platformatech, which was sold recently, and uh, the founder of a newer company called Dashbit, inventor of a little thing you may have heard of called the Elixir programming language. The reason why we're all here and why Chris and I even know each other. Please welcome to the show, Jose Valim. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on the podcast again. It feels like it's been a very long time. Right. It has, especially, you know, lately feels like everything, so much has happened. Yeah. Uh, you, you were talking about the, uh, you know, being in meetings and so on. So my coworker Wojtek, he says that our traditions have changed before we would shake hands. And now what we do mm-hmm. is that we comb our hair. It's the first thing that we do when we join a meeting. Because like <laughs> the first thing is when we see each other, we see ourselves, right? So we're like all combing our hair as soon as we join. And so clearly Desmond and I haven't been getting into that habit, but um, we will take that <laughs> into the next meeting, you know. Maybe you need to introduce this... Uh, this way of saying hi to the companies. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you back. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure like the last time we had you on the show was one of the early episodes, right? Or did we do another one? I can't. I'm. Is it there been... was a very, a very early episode that right. Jose joined us on. And then I believe there was another one to discuss uh, something that had come out with uh, some new Elixir features or something. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so this is your third time on the show. I think you are our first third timer, Woo-hoo! which is uh, quite the accolade, you know. Um, awesome. It's an incredible milestone to hit. Chris McCord isn't even up there with you yet. So, you know, you're really just totally ahead right now, Jose. 
Oh, oh that's awesome. You, you <laughs> it's also that you mentioned Chris because I I don't know if you know we have like this this silly joke that we do at events, which is it always started by accident. Uh, we were we were like somebody came. Oh, I think somebody uh, was Chris and I was talking, and then somebody came to Chris and asked me to take a picture of Chris and that person, <laughs> <laughs> and then Chris was I like, "Like, are like you should be taking a picture with him? Like, do you know who he is?" And now we have like this this joke where every time we are at an event, we try to get other picture to. So I try to get somebody to take. To get Chris to take a picture of me, so I love that. Uh, so now we are going to incorporate that to our to our uh, internal rankings. I love uh, the idea of causing this like or continuing this rivalry between the two of you. So that sounds that sounds great. You know, Chris and I have Chris Bell and I have sort of a similar thing going on where we try to figure out who's more famous at at these events because Chris is taller than I am and he has a distinctly British voice. It's true. <laughs> I still feel like we fly under the radar quite a lot, but um, we appreciate everyone who comes up to us. Hopefully, we'll be able to still do these events, you know, um, and yeah, we'll see. get back to conferences at some point in the future. So, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So, um, let's dig in because I know, Jose, you have some exciting news. Uh, your company, Dashbit, recently released a new product called Bitepack, which I want to hear a little bit about. Um yeah, I think the, the landing pages came out, and I think he, the actual service is being released soon. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what Bitepack is and uh, where the idea came from? Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, I, I will start with where the idea came from, because it's not a good elevator pitch, but I think it is going to give everybody uh, the, the, the context necessary. So, sure. uh, you know, I have been doing open source for like... 13 years, so I have been writing software for developers for a really long time. And about, I think it's two years ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, a little bit less than that, um, I started thinking about having um, a paid product, right? Like, so I wanted to, to develop something that uh, develop it's still for developers, but it would be a higher level tool, focus on infrastructure, and we, it would have a paid model um, behind it. So it's not going to be like just to give a, a reference, right? Like Sidekick, Open is not related to job processing, but just to give an idea which kind of tools we're talking about. And uh, recently, with all the transitions that have happened from platform attack to Dashbit, and now we start with Dashbit at the beginning of this year, we start to have more time to focus on what is going to be this potential product, this potential software product. And it turns out that when we are figuring out what you need to do to actually sell a software product, it's a lot of work, like really a lot of work. So, uh, so for example, the thing that we are going to do, uh, we are possibly going to distribute it through hacks or as a Docker image. So, you know, we would have to set up a Docker registry. We need to set up our own hacks, right? And we need to set up payments. We actually need to uh, set up invoices. And me being a Brazilian, living in Poland, I know that... Um, each different country actually has different rules about invoices and so on. Um, and then, um, so when we start, I started, we started looking into this, all those things, they started to accumulate and it was like, oh my God, like this is so much work. It feels like we have to put so much time into developing the structure where we're, which we're actually going to use to deliver the, the product, right? It, it, so it felt like this is way too much. And then we realized that everybody who was selling their software products for developers and companies we, through those similar mechanisms like, oh, through RubyGems or through NPM or Hacks or Docker, they all had to, they all have to set up the same structure, right? This, they have to solve this problem over and over again. And we, I also found out about other things that I were not expecting. So for example, um, 
you know, if you are selling a digital good, a, a service or a product, you're actually liable for paying taxes, like in all different countries around the world. Mm. And each of those countries, they have their own rules for that. So it always started to add up. And, um, and then, you know, I started to talk with uh, other developers who are actually already selling products and they were, and, and they felt the pain. They're like, oh yeah, we had to set all this up. And, you know, I still have clients complaining to me about invoices not working properly. Uh, or I have to send custom invoices by hand. Or, you know, when a client doesn't pay, uh, the payment service is not integrated with the thing that delivers the package. So we felt like, you know what? We Since this seems to be a common problem for everybody who wants to, like, deliver or sell software products for other developers and enterprises we decided to build a platform for that so uh so so that's how it came to be it, it's basically we've built a platform that we want to use for selling our future software products and um and we we made it a platform because we want other people to to join us so the idea here is that a bite packs a platform that helps you package and deliver software products to developers and enterprise. That's the the tagline. Hmm. So let me see if I have uh, a use case in mind because um, it took me a while to get my head around what you're offering. This is not the case of I've written uh, a program like Slack that's maybe a desktop app or something and that people would download, install on their machine and then uh, put in a license key or something. This is more like suppose I write some software for uh, – advanced image processing. And I release that as either a hex package to dial into people's Elixir applications, or maybe as a Docker image that gets spun up with some binaries that I've written. Um, that would go through your platform. And then customers would download my advanced image processor and uh, pay me through Bytepack. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So our focus is not like the general, uh, let's say the general population. Our focus is on writing. You would be selling tools that are aimed at other developers or at software companies and enterprises because one of the things with, with Bytepack is that the delivery method is integrated with your tooling, right? So if you use Docker, um, we will deliver it for Docker. If you use NPM, we are going to deliver it for NPM. So we are really focused on the software developer experience. And mm-hmm. and and my goal is that, so imagine that you have this idea, you have like this image processing tool and you want to, and you want to sell it. Uh, the idea is that you'll be able to, you know, like to to package, sell, and deliver it in Bytepack in like in a day. You'll be able to set up everything, right? You'll be able to create our account. We'll help you uh, create your landing page where you can put the pricing, the the structure, the frequent asked questions, and then all you have to do is like uh, if you're using Hacks, you're going to you just send it to our own Hacks registry. And then people, they can start paying for it. And you don't have to worry about any of that stuff that I was talking about, right? You don't have to integrate with payments. You don't have to set up your own registries. You don't have to create your site for a landing page, set up webhooks, none of that. Right. So uh, I know uh, you gave the example of Sidekick and Oban. I think that's a really great example. And I know that um, Oban UI is actually trying to sell licenses via Hex today, um, but using the private Hex capabilities, right? Um, I'm I'm not so sure, but uh, how how they are doing it, uh, I believe I believe that's the case. I have been talking to 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 Sodden here and there, cool. uh, but I'm not yeah. super sure on the, all the details. Right. Okay. Um, it it just seems like that's a perfect use case here. It's this idea where you've got the standard open source piece of tooling, and then you've got this really, really great add-on that's clearly taken a lot of time and energy to produce. Um, and therefore, the developer can get some money back for publishing a piece of software like that. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And and integrating all of the pieces that you actually need to make it run. And there are like other advantages, for example, like, you know, if you are selling directly, then um, then you are required of paying taxes in all the countries 
that you have clients, you may be required. It depends on the rules of that place. But right. uh, if you do it for Bytepack, Bytepack is actually the, the entity responsible for doing that. And it turns out, I learned that it's for a very interesting reasons. Like the government, they actually want to to charge the platforms because it's much easier for you to charge a platform or a marketplace rather mm-hmm. than charging everybody selling from there, right? So, you know, if you have eBay, it's much easier to charge eBay that everybody who is selling from there, you're collecting from eBay than collecting from yeah. everybody. So it's one of the places where uh, it's actually great for the governments and it's actually great for the platforms because it's one 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 extra thing that we you using a platform don't have to worry about. What's uh what's your goal of doing this? Like what do you what's your like vision of what open source and software might look like by um by producing a platform like this, Jose? Oh, that's a very good question. So my goal, so yeah, yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. So one of the things is that like uh, Dashbit, we so Bytepack is being like self-funded. Um, it's a platform that we want to use, and mm-hmm. uh, our main goal initially is like have a platform that we can use ourselves, right? And then if in if in the process we can help uh, other developers to do the same, then we will be glad. But our focus is ourselves and you know building it and also having fun with it that's kind of where we are right now it's not something that we're saying oh let's build this so we can go and get this money and make this really big right just just in general direction where we think the product right uh, it's fine you know if you want to get this money just not something that it's our plan um in the long term so it we want it to be a platform that we can use and maybe it's going to be uh, very useful for other people. And when it comes to open source, right? And exactly, I started saying that I have been doing open source for 13 years. I honestly, I, I don't think it's going to make a big difference, right? Because if you look over like the last decade, uh, open source has always won, right? So it's like, I... I you know, having a platform where you can you're selling like proprietary code or pro versions of things, um, I don't think it's going to make a big difference on what is being done with open source around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, but at the same time, I know that there are uh, some some tools that, in order for them to exist in the long term and in order for them to be sustainable they need to have a paid model right, right. so we and, and we we've seen throughout the years as well an increase in in software where they are doing things well the software is dual license so for example the software is under a copyleft license like gpl and then if you want to use at an enterprise you need to buy a commercial license we also hear a lot about open core software, which is where you have the core, which is open source, and then you have a pro or enterprise model. So I talked about Oban and Sidekick, they have this model, right? So you have right, a, a right. paid model on top of it. And I think, uh, and, and I hope Bytepack is going to, it can help those developers to, 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 to maintain those open source tools and those paid models on top of it uh, in, in a sustainable way. And I hope we can help with that. But I think in the, in the major scale of things, I think like most things, they will continue being open source, right? We, we don't plan to to use, for example, Bytepack. So we have like a paid Elixir version, right? That, that would be a huge mistake. Like <laughs> right, that will right. never happen, right? Uh, yeah. We saw big companies way bigger than us, like Microsoft going the complete opposite direction where they made everything open source. So... Yeah, so so that's kind of my thought. Like, I think if we can help, like some teams or some individuals to you know to create great tools and make that live alongside the open source, it will be great. Will be really helpful. Um, but yeah, uh, we let's say that we have very mild ambitions. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't seem like it would cannibalize open source because as you say there's already this model out there of people providing paid 
or pro versions of things, but what you're doing is automating the uh, infrastructure of selling software with the payments and the compliance and uh, invoicing and distribution. Like that's just infrastructure common to selling any kind of digital on the digital product, but software product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and the thing and the thing about cannibalizing is also yeah exactly. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But one of the things that I think it's like it's worth talking about is because sometimes when we talk about like even it, there's a lot of discussion about sustainable open source. The, this was actually something that um, I started to look a lot into when 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 we were working on Bytepack, and a lot of people have way different interpretations of what sustainable open source means. So it's a very loaded term. It's one that I try to I try to avoid nowadays because I understand that it means a lot of different things for different people. But and, and then you have people that you know they really dislike the open core model or they really dislike the dual licensing model, and that's fine. But sometimes the argument that is made is that, you know, they say, oh, we have like this, this project here where they have a, they have this open core, they have this core that is open source and they have the pro version on top. And sometimes they say that if that version was not paid, what you would have, the alternative to that would be a software where all of those things, both the core and everything in the paid version, all those things, they would be free. Right, but that's that's not necessarily true. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I don't buy that either. Right, yeah. sometimes when you have the alter- the alternative for an open core, is actually uh, having nothing at all, right? Because the author mm. or the team no longer has interest or the energy in maintaining that tool. Nobody pick, right. picks up the mantle, and then the thing dies. And this scenario where it dies is the worst scenario for everybody. Right, so. Mm. Um, so, you know, like, yeah, so it, it, so that's kind of where, where we stand. We know that for, I don't think it's going to cannibalize or change open source at all, but I think for, for small teams, developers, it can help, uh, them to create a profitable or business model or a product that they can continue developing along most likely along open source variants and uh, Bytepack is going to make it more accessible for everybody. So Jose, now I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you what you thought sustainable open source looked like. Um, (laughs) And I know that's like, you just said it's a very loaded term, Um, but you know, we've got, we've got GitHub sponsorships on one side, we've got huge corporate sponsorships of projects on another side um, where do you kind of fall and what do you think the the future should look like on supporting these purely open open source projects um oh man it's <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tricky question so for me so I'm, I'm going to say so this is a very personal observation i know it doesn't mm-hmm. apply to everybody um, I know a lot of people will agree with me on this. Again, it, it, it's it, a lot of people that are going to have different interpretations. Um, so for me, I would um, I'm not a big fan of uh, the the sponsorships. Um, if it works for for some people and they feel comfortable doing it, uh, then please go ahead and do it. It's definitely one option. I I I it's definitely not, not an option that I would consider. Um, because, you know, so we have, uh, I believe, for example, I hope I'm not butchering this story, but I believe, for example, like Rich Hickey, he was used to accept donations uh, for closure, but that led to some like, um, entitlement for people donating. Right. So they are like those, these complex relationship that you have to, to go through. Maybe today it's much more normalized and this entitlement has mostly disappeared, especially with GitHub making sponsorships more, um, more common, uh, that, uh, that dissipates, but it's also, you know, like, um, you're also always depending, you know, on somebody actually going and donating. Right. And I feel like, and then, for example, right now, we, we are at such a time that uh, maybe it becomes much harder, for example, for you to rely on those kind of means. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, if uh, 
preferably and this is what I have been trying over the last years is to try to to aggregate some value with the try to give some value besides the open source right so what we do at Dashbit we do the Elixir development subscription which is a service where uh, uh, your engineering team is going to be in direct contact with our engineering team for support code reviews and you know our knowledge one of the reasons why you would hire Dashbit right it's because we are involved on a lot of the open source and the open source that you are using right so um, we do have the open source foundation but the value that we are giving to you it's not the open source right it, we, we are giving an extra value uh, which is the support, the code reviews, uh, our share, us sharing our knowledge directly. And those are the ways I would prefer to go to when we are talking about sustainable open source, right? And, and that's kind of the message that I also try to, to put in Bytepack because uh, there are other platforms today that allows you to sell code, right? But, but their focus is exactly that, it's selling code. And, you know, or you're, they are selling access to a Git repository or they are selling code, uh, code snippets. But we know that, you know, selling, we don't generally see a lot of value in code, right? Usually a developer, when you say, hey, you know, there's some code, you're like, I would prefer to do it myself, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, 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 st we don't use, we don't talk about code on the Bytepack landing page, right? Because when you're selling on Bytepack, we really want you to think about products, right? Because a product has a value, right? Has a roadmap, has, has the vision of the person who created that product. And I think that if you're selling something with a clear value, it's going to be better to you because you're probably going to have a easier time selling it and it's going to be, to be better for whoever is buying it because it's very clear what they are getting back right so when i'm thinking about um about you know sustainable open source that's kind of where my mind is at it's like where can can i find something of value that i can give alongside um um, you know, that open source thing, be it support, be it uh, pro features or something that is going to altogether be a better package, right? So that's where I would usually go to. Uh, sponsorships, you know, if it can work, one of the things also about sponsorships is that it feels like it actually only works for really big projects where we're going to have a lot of people sponsoring. And is you know, mm -hmm. and if you're just starting out, um, with something small, it's going to be hard for you to bootstrap yourself like that. Um, yeah. So, you know, so, yeah, so I, again, it's my opinion. I know others disagree and I know others, they have been successful with those. Um, right. But it's something that I would, I would, um, I would personally uh, not use or, yeah, not use myself. But at the same time, I'm also completely fine with, um, company uh, sponsorships, right? When there are companies that are really sponsoring a developer, maybe you no know, half time or full time to work on that. And sometimes if necessary, align the goals. Because I think, again, uh, it's not because of the sponsorship, it's just because I think it's a, a more sustainable model, right? You're not, you know, it's a company that's actually paying you to be there full time and you don't have to be worried about uh, a bunch of small donations coming from a bunch of different places, which sometimes it's hard to get and sustain the long term. No, it makes sense. I, yeah. I um, Just going back to the Dashbit model, uh, I heard this described to me recently as something called fractional engineering, where you're thinking about adding and leveraging the value in a very kind of short space of time. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about what you're doing at Dashbit as well, where, you know, you, as you said, um, you have this team who are very enmeshed in kind of the world of open source and they provide very high leverage and very high value for the teams that are engaging with Dashbit because they're experts, because they're so connected to the community and all of the projects that you're using every day. So, yeah, I, I love that as a way to sustainably deliver your own open source projects and also offer something back to the wider community as well through, you know, through using your team and, and, and helping um, kind of drive quality of code forward across across other teams' code bases as well. 
Yeah, particularly, I mean, when you're solving your own problem and dogfooding a thing, I think it makes for a better product. Right. Because, I mean, you know what it, how it's supposed to work and you can sort of understand the ergonomics of it. Which uh, brings me to uh, a little change in subject is um, I'd love to hear a little more about the latest in Live View, which, of course, is supported by our friends over at Dockyard uh, and is doing the good work of making the front end more accessible to Elixir developers. Um, there was a big release recently. And Jose, I want to hear what your involvement with that was and like where you see that project going. Yeah, so yeah, that's actually a great question because I think it ties into everything that we have been saying in regard in regards to open source. So just going a little bit back before we get there. So one of the, the nice things about Dashbit and our model is that it creates a virtual cycle. Because, for example, uh, when we started Broadway, it was actually feedback that we learned from our clients when they were trying to use GenStage. So we saw them going over the same mistakes over and over again. And they're like, wait, there has to be a better way to tackle this problem. And that's when we created Broadway, right? And now we have people wanting, you know, that comes to work with us. Uh, because they are using Broadway, you know, and they're like, oh, we want to make sure that we are following Broadway best practices. And one of the things that we hear a lot from our clients when we ask them, where do you think the value of working with Dashbit is? They say, it's there is one word that they use, which is confidence. They feel more confident in their code because we are there working with them, reviewing, talking about architectural stuff. So it it's a it's a very nice virtual cycle where you know uh, it helps us improve our tools and continue writing those tools as we work with different companies. And when it comes with Bytepack and LiveView, um, we are having the same relationship and Phoenix in general. So with Bytepack, um, it's being when you enter the the your dashboard, your panel when you're logging, everything in there is being done with LiveView. So, uh, you know, we're really excited to be actually now using LiveView in Anger. And throughout this process, we have been, you know, we have been finding bugs, adding features, um, you know, doing improvements here and there. And um, it has been really, really a, a, a joy to use. I told Chris that I don't think I would have started this product if it was not for LiveView. Because one of the things I said at the beginning was we're actually having lots of fun uh, building it. And I, I, if I'm honest, I, I have been jaded from like web development for such a long time. Um, and now, you know, because if I wanted to make everything that looked nice or that felt interactive, um, you know, we, we had to use JavaScript. I'm not a JavaScript developer. I, you know, I would prefer to be doing Ruby back then or Elixir now, and now this option of, you know, I can do that from the comfort of Elixir is just so nice and it is so rewarding. I feel like really productive, the things that we can do and we can make it work uh, with a much simpler stack. So, uh, so, so yeah, it has been really nice. And then, uh, you know, sometimes you want new features, but those new features, they require some JavaScript. So I have to to bug Chris and say like, hey, write the JavaScript for me because <laughs> Chris <laughs> sacrificed himself. So he has to write the JavaScript for the rest of us. Um, but it, yeah, it has been uh, really nice. So so focusing on, on, on LiveView uh, uh, directly, we had... Uh, we had a, a LiveView 0.12, and with it, we had Phoenix um, 1.5. And one of the features in Phoenix 1.5 is exactly the integrated generators, um, the integrated LiveView generators. So if you want to start your LiveView application, everything uh, goes really smooth. You just run the generators and everything is in place. Uh, there are a bunch of other features. I, I, you know, I don't remember exactly the details, but one of the features that I'm really excited about is the new testing features. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Do you want to walk us through them, like, just uh, in case our listeners have? Yeah. So, so those features they came exactly as we were working on Bytepack. So, what well, what was happening is that I was writing tests for LiveView. And I was not feeling comfortable with the live view tests that I was writing, right? Because, because what you would do when writing live view tests in the previous versions is that you would say, look, 
I'm going to send a click event with name like uh, submit to the live view. But there was actually no guarantee that you would have a button in the page that ha had that event. There was no guarantee that the button that you click would submit something that the live view could handle. It, it, the, 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 this cycle, it was not closed, right? So I was not confident in the tests. And then I stopped to think about it and I was like, do I have like the same kind of concern with my regular controller tests? And I was like, no, I don't, right? Because when you're thinking about controllers or let's say like stateless HTTP tests, the contract's very simple, right? You have the URL, you have parameters and that's it. And there is a reasonable amount of trust in there and conventions to for everything to feel in place, to, to, to feel that they are in place. But with LiveView, it's interactive. There are a bunch of events now. There is click, there is page exchange, page ex submit. So uh, what I've worked on for uh, for LiveView 0.12 is to have things, uh, it's, it's, it feels like acceptance tests, like you would write using Selenium or Chrome driver or whatever, like browser-based tests, but everything is happening within Elixir. Right? So now when you're writing a live view test, you can say, look, I wanted to find this element on the page. You can give a query selector or if you want to say, hey, I wanted to click the button that has the text uh, volume up. And then you just say, click this button and the live view test library is going to find that button on the page. It's going to make sure that it has a click event. It's going to automatically get that click event name, send it to the live view, and give the results back to you. Uh, and, and this giving the results is synchronous because the tests, they run concurrently anyway. So it's a very simple to understand model. And it gives, at least to me, it gives all the confidence that I want to have in my tests without any of the complexity of bringing a whole browser testing infrastructure that is flaky because everything is asynchronous, that is slow and so on. So to me, it was like, now I feel really happy building the app and testing the app, uh, which is um, the perfect place, like the place where you actually want to be. And when uh, we officially launch it, I, I hope that I'll also be really happy running it in production. We are getting there. That's amazing. Um, I, I'm just super curious to know. So does, how does a selector work there when you're finding the element within the, the view? Yeah, uh, so, you're not constructing any kind of DOM in any way, right? Oh, or are you just oh, trying to... So, uh, so this is all possible thanks to the amazing work of two people. So uh, one, as you can expect, is Chris McCourt because he... So not only he implemented the, the live view client in 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 JavaScript, but he also implemented the early version in Elixir. So you have like the same live view client implementing two things. And uh, and, and the second person is uh, Philippe Sampaio. He, he is the maintainer of the Flocky library. So we actually, we don't have the whole DOM model, but we have the whole HTML3 and we traverse it. Right. And right. We, we implement DOM-like behavior for everything related to live view. So in your live view test, you can actually say, find this link and uh, click it. And if the, the link doesn't have PHX click, we'll actually look at the href and submit the href. So we do all this stuff. And we also do like cool things. I've implemented a lot of nice things in regards to forms as well. So when you say, I want to submit those forms to the live view, um, with this data, we actually check that the input names, they actually exist on the page, that the input's not hidden. So there's a bunch of validation to make sure that, you know, while you're testing, it's that those are actually possible events or things that can happen. There are other things that we Amazing. don't test for, like if the element's hidden or the, yeah. uh, the, the index is like minus something, then we, we don't test that. We don't evaluate CSS, but uh, a lot of the, 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 the guarantees that you expect are there. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible um, and really awesome to hear about. So um, you talked about the, the live view generators there as well. And I know that there's another big feature um, that is, is coming up in the upcoming Phoenix release as well, which is the auth generators. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about those as well? Oh, please? yeah. So we recently, yeah. So again, it's all, all related. Uh, we we recently wrote in the Dashbit blog about uh, 
an idea for uh, authentication generators for, for Phoenix. And, uh, and there is a pull request with the whole authentication system implementation and Aaron Renner from Dockyard, he converted them to action generators. And the whole authentication system, it was actually extracted from Bytepack, right? So, so again, I think it comes back to the for first questions from Desmond, like, you know, how you see this with open source and in a way it's like not cannibalizing open source at all, but it's actually helping a lot, right? Because as we are building this tool, we are extracting a bunch of our work and putting it back uh, into open source and giving it back to the community. So uh, that's actually very interesting. <laughs> Amazing. And then I know there's one. There was one huge feature that got shipped very recently as well, which is the live dashboard. Um, were you involved in that one at all as well? Oh yes. Yeah. So um, I, I like uh, huge kudos to to Michael Crum. He he's the one who who led the effort, and uh, you know he 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 did the metrics. He did uh, the whole structure of the um, uh, of the dashboard. And then in the like, like so he did like eighty percent of the work, ninety percent of the work, and then in the last mile, um, I was able to help a little bit. So bringing like the, the, like the dashboard initial page and the things for navigating processes, just to set up like the mm. basic structure of where I want to go. And uh, Pshemek, uh, he did all the design that I love. It's just fantastic. So, um, yeah, and then we launched that. So we launched that initial version that had just like metrics uh, for telemetry yeah. integration, the request logger and some uh, accessing PID. And I was like, this is out there, this is the template. And then the community came and just built a huge amount of extra features, which was amazing. So now like you can navigate ETS tables, sockets, ports. Uh, somebody recently added um, system monitoring data so you can get data from the OS like you know how much are the CPUs being used um, wow. so yeah so that was a very recent effort as well and uh, we uh, I did help a little bit but uh, the majority of the work was uh, thanks to to Michael Michael Crum from, from Dockyard and uh, Pshamek with his uh, amazing design yeah, that's super nice because the observer, like, you know, it's one of those moments when you're coming to Elixir and I guess the Erlang community as well, where you realize that a lot of work has gone into tooling over the years and you realize that, oh my God, I can introspect a live system with this thing and it shows me all this information. Like, I don't have to do anything. I mean, that's cool until you realize it's difficult to do that in production because you got to like connect your local node to the cluster of running things in the server. Maybe there's firewall issues you have to sort out. So the fact that it's now built in um, and just accessible via web UI eliminates that whole class of problems. So I'm very happy with that. Yeah, and 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 to be to be fair, it's not a new idea in any place, in, in any way, right? Like I think Square Enix, they have their web server, which I love the name, like web server, um, <laughs> which is web observer. And they did that a long time ago. But for for us, like really the, the the trigger was, hey, we can do that in live view. And it's going to be, you know, sending updates on the page is going to be like just boringly easy and simple. And the fact that so many people are able to jump and contribute new features to it so quickly, I think it's yeah. a very good statement to what you can actually build with live view. Yeah, I you know I the more I keep reading about the current discourse around JavaScript, the more I see live view reference as an alternative. So it does definitely feel like there is traction and momentum gaining there as well. Um, Jose, I don't know if on your side you've kind of felt the the result of that, but um, it seems like to me, like every Twitter thread I read, and there's been quite a lot over the last week, um, especially I think DHH was retweeting something about um, one of the prominent uh, React developers um, and talking about a shift to thinking about more server-side. Every time I click in there, it's like, well, have you thought about Live View as an alternative? Um, can, I, it, can I jump in there? Because yeah. I just found out about, uh, Jose, one of your colleagues, Marlis, has put together this library, Surface. Oh, the component just discovered. Yeah. It's, it's built on top of Live Component, and it looks like basically React, but in Elixir. Yes, uh, I, th I think so. So let's say like Live View is kind of like React uh, for let's say it's Re React for the server, 
of um mm. and surface is like j jsx is that the name yeah that's right yeah is, yeah, is, yeah. is the Thank is you. the jsx on on top of live view so the focus is there on um he had he had two particular focuses one is the templating language and the other mm -hmm. one is giving you compile time guarantee so when you call a component if you have like a button component and then you are passing like a class attribute to that component uh, surface actually validates at compile time that that component is expecting that attribute and you are passing the proper way so uh, surface is also very very exciting and i'm really glad you you brought it up um more uh, marvis has been working really hard on it and uh, and his view is exactly he thinks that uh with surface we can make uh, elixir and live view even more accessible right because it's bringing the whole model to people who want to migrate over and, and to answer your question chris like yes i have noticed that because since uh chris uh the the screen the the screencast came out yeah the 15 minute blog uh, um, the, the 15 minute twitter demo yes, sorry yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, he, yeah. <laughs> it's actually noticeable like there are more people asking on the forum there are more you can see like there are more people um um trying elixir out because sometimes you have a very old issue like oh if you are in this particular position the moon is high it's high in the sky like something doesn't work on <laughs> linux so you have like yeah. a very old issues where somebody just saying hey i just try what i suggest and it worked for me so like issues that were dead for a long time it was not like once or twice like uh, many times it's happening that old issues about those things that are very peculiar they are getting activity and i think those are mm. all related with new people coming and trying uh elixir and sometimes they do run into those corner cases um so and then the same thing happening in Phoenix. You can see like, oh, they are they are really getting started with the language, with the framework, with the ecosystem. And sure, I mostly get to know about the cases where things they do not work because that's when they have to do a bug report, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. But hopefully, there are a bunch of people where things they they just work, and then you get to hear about it later, right? When when uh, somebody says something on Twitter, then they're like, yeah, like I just started using it like a month ago and everything worked just fine and the things in production and everybody's happy yeah definitely i i have made it my mission over the next month or so to actually write some live view because i haven't even done that yet and it's kind of a disgrace that i've talked about Chris. it so much but never written it so shame um, on you i'm gonna give you some feedback jose that's gonna be my mission after this so there we yeah go. yeah so now you can try the the generators is going to be definitely. much faster for you to get started and uh, the generators also use the new testing tool, so you can give me feedback on the tests. And uh, yeah, I would love yeah. to hear that. Awesome. Well, uh, Jose, it's been so fantastic having you on well, the wait, show. Hold on, you got one out. more. Sorry. Well, I would ask about Elixir. Oh sure, sorry. I'm there's me just trying to wrap up, and Desmond coming back in with the questions. I see this how is it is. Okay, let's just have this one one last area, and then we, then we can wrap it up. Uh, do you want to do a clap so we can cut this bit out? No. Okay. No, our listeners can just hear. <laughs> yes, okay. it happens. It's really fine. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I want to hear, like, what's on your mind with Elixir? I mean, one thing that I'm excited about are some of the changes in uh, OTP. I think it's 23 yeah. that let us use um, map keys in guards to check for the presence of a key and, I think, a value in a map. Yeah. Um, which is, is great because it, it my company at Payoff, we use the decimal library, and it's very difficult to, like, match on decimals or tell us something is greater than or less than. Um, well, you can't really do it in guard clauses because they're structures. And so you lose a lot of that fun functionality, but it looks like we will be able to do that once these changes are in. So, so. unfortunately, not really. So, uh, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, right in the heart. Okay. Yes. So, unfortunately, uh, what you can do in Elixir Master is that you can access map fields in guards, but I think the yeah. decimal operations, they are too complex to still mm. be able to express in a guard. Or maybe it's possible, but you would just have to emit mm -hmm. a, a large chunk of code. So unfortunately, I don't think you get what you want. Um, however, okay. what we are getting with Erlang to P23 is that uh, the OTP team has implemented the EP48, which is known as the docs chunk, which means mm -hmm. that 
in the new Elixir version, we'll be able to access Erlang documentation on IX. And that's very exciting. Amazing. Yeah, that's a great. And I also heard that uh, there's a new PG. Is that right? That like PG2 is getting deprecated in OTP24? Yes, correct. Uh, so there is a new PG. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, most people, they use P the, the previous version, which was PG2, which is actually high, right. high, has a higher number, but uh, they use through <laughs> Phoenix PubSub. Uh, and mm -hmm. Phoenix PubSub um, already supports the new PG if you're using 13. So for most people, it's going to okay. be transparent. But if you don't want to depend on PubSub for some reason, you do have a a really good alternative on uh, Erlang itself. Uh, there are a bunch of other nice features. Um, yeah, it, it came out today, right? Uh, but the one I'm yeah, I that's right. yeah. most excited about is definitely the doc stuff because it has been asked for, um, for you know, for people um, uh, really frequently. So it's really nice to, to yeah. get in there. And in the next Elixir version, so today I boot up my Windows VM and in the next Elixir version, we are also going to have, uh, if you're using Windows, you're going to get like NC, I don't know how to pronounce that, but you're going to get like coloring when you're running your tests when or when you are running IX. So if you're using Windows, there is this really good news. Like people really wanted that. I've yeah. I've learned today that actually, so they added some somewhere in the Windows 10 lifecycle, they added support for NCscape codes to the regular console, but you need to execute an instruction that changes the registry in order for it to work. So so now like so today I was like writing Windows batch scripts that read the registry and see if this particular flag is set and if it is set. Elixir is going to enable coloring for your Windows. So, yay. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's cool. a really nice quality of life improvement for Windows developers. So, yeah, that's a great one. Um, I, I know at ElixirConf last year, you talked more about shifting a bit more towards uh, lower down in the stack. Is that something that you've been been able to work on over the last few months? Oh, yeah. So I've done that and all my attempts failed. <laughs> <laughs> so I've definitely done that. I'm going to, uh, um, I'm going to go back and try a couple things out. So one of the things that I did was actually inlining of VM instructions. There were some papers mm -hmm. that they talked about it. And I was able to get things like Fibonacci to actually run like three times, four times faster. Uh, with the things that are experimenting, but um, you know, it only it it would only work for very um, when you are aligning a very small amount of code like Fibonacci. When the code gets too big, it falls out of the CPU cache, and it, then it doesn't it doesn't work. So I played with all of these, and this this is really a testament to the quality of the Erlang OTP team, the VM and the compiler teams, because like. I read like so many papers and then I would like, oh, I think this one's a good idea. And uh, I would try it or I would email them and they'd be like, oh yeah, we tried this. And the results were like <laughs> this and this and that. And, right. you know, so every time I was like, ah, oh, like I, I was like, I found it. Like this is going to, to be great. Like native compilation, which was kind of the areas that I was interested in. And the all, all, all times they were way ahead of me, like way ahead. And, yeah, so so they know, all failed. Uh, no more news on this front. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's good to at least have tried, right? So I'm sure something. Uh, I'm sure if you keep going there, we'll find something that's going to get accepted. So that's it's really cool to hear. Yeah, I I learned a lot and about. I learned also about uh, different all the crazy things that people do um, for optimization or for tackling specific problems. So I'm not going to remember the name of the language, but there's like, for example, a language, um, I believe it's for Python, where it's kind of a subset of Python. It's not SciPy. It's something that, uh, it's a functional Python subset that is meant mm -hmm. for you to work with arrays and, mat and matrices. So it's kind of a subset of the language and they compile that like to extremely efficient code. And so like, Optimizing the VM is not something that I was able to do, but now like maybe I'm going to try this in the future because I found out about this way of working with um, 
with arrays and matrices and lists that is super efficient. And there are some people exploring this with Hastega that they renamed. But oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it, it did point out to other very interesting things that can be done in this area. Amazing. Yeah. And the, the other thing I wanted to ask was uh, at ElixirConf, if I remember correctly, you mentioned about more kind of static analysis tools and um, the compiler giving off more information so that we could potentially do a bit more of that, those static analyses. Um, is that is that something that's still in the works? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in Alexi 1.10, we released something called compilation tracers, which allows mm -hmm. you to which allows us to expose more of the work that the compiler is doing. So, for example, Sasha Yurich, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Uh, you guys, you guys know, right? Did I get it right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. All right. I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't want to say yes, definitely, but I think so. so. Okay. Cl close enough to, to fool most people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, um, yeah. So he's using it to great effect in his boundary library, which is one of the. So, so for example, we are talking about st static uh, verification because, and a lot of people say, oh, is that a type system? And they're like, not, not necessarily. <laughs> Right, because there are a bunch of other static verifications that you can do. So, for example, today, if you match on a struct, and then later, and you assign it to a variable, and then you later do map uh, like struct dot field that does not exist, the compiler does not catch it, right? And right. it's not necessarily type checking; it's a static verification. Um, so we have been doing a lot of work in this area and then boundary is one of the areas that we wanted to explore like what if we could close modules we had a whole discussion mm -hmm. like could we have private modules so it's really see that with us exposing some of the guts of the compiler uh, people can actually build that as a package without changing the language so we right. are having some progress in there and Eric he's being sponsored by by Brex. Again, it goes back to sponsorship, right? And a, a company sponsorship. So, you know, Brex, they're really vested into Elixir and they want to make sure that the language is the best that it can possibly be. So they are sponsoring Eric to work on it. And Eric is continuing explore, exploring this stuff. So, um, so, you know, for example, we do catch some obvious static, uh, it, I would even say type errors in guards in Elixir 1.10. So if you say like is atom and is tuple, which can never be true for the same variable, we actually get a warning right now. Uh, you actually get warning warnings like I think this is in master, and this is something that I saw a bunch of people tripping on. Is like if you have a variable with a string, and you use the binary constructor syntax like the one with the less than less than and you put that value in there, the default interpretation for that value is that it actually is an integer. So if you put the variable in there with a string inside the binary, that is actually an argument error. But now Elixir is going to tell you, it's going to say, hey, you know, you are putting an you're putting a string in here and we expect it to be an integer. You may want to append like to do the column column binary. Uh, we are also planning to do the thing I just talked about structs. So, if you match an instruct at some point, we'll be better able to track if you access a field that doesn't exist later on. So we are doing all those things that are really quality, quality of life improvements, and I'm sure they're going to, to help uh, people find bugs early on, right? And it's even yeah. funny, recently we got a bug report where they got one of those new warnings. And they're like, Elixir is warning me because of this. And then they're like, yes, if you look at the code, the code is inconsistent. That's that never actually going to that's never actually going to succeed so um yeah so there's definitely uh working happening there and eric's the one uh leading this front amazing yeah i i mean like i think we're with where we're going with ide integrations and kind of type feedback between um between the compiler and getting that feedback instantly back in your editor i think you know, it's a really nice like guiding path to help you kind of code and fix those issues before they ever really happen. So, uh, yeah, yeah, love seeing yeah, that. Yeah, and we were talking about surface, and that's something I know Marlos has worked a lot on. So, if you get mm -hmm. any warnings or errors in surface, it has integration with uh, the language server and Visual Studio right. Code. So, you are also getting a lot of feedback directly. So, a lot of interesting things happening in this area. Yeah, amazing. Um, we'll definitely keep our eye out for more stuff there. Cool. So 
now now that Desmond got to ask his question and we dug in a bit more into the language, which I'm very glad we did, um, I think we can wrap up for today's show. Um, Jose, as always, it's been a pleasure having you on and it's really awesome to hear about Bikepack. We're going to put all of the links from everything mentioned in today's episode in the show notes um, so you can check out everything we mentioned there. Uh, but yeah, Jose, always a pleasure, never a chore, love having you on the show and hopefully we can do a fourth one pretty soon as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really great time and now we have to tell Chris McCord to step up. He's way behind, way <laughs> behind. De definitely, definitely. Well, folks, that's all we've got time for on today's show. Um, thank you once again for joining us. Wherever you're getting this podcast today, if you give us a rating or a review, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and if you have any questions for us, you can reach out to us at twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk, or you can open up a GitHub issue on our GitHub page, which is github.com forward slash Elixir Talk forward slash Elixir Talk. So that's all we've got time for today. Uh, I've been Chris Bell. I'm Desmond Bowie. And that's Jose that's Valine. That's Jose Valine. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's me. And <laughs> <laughs> keep keep elixirin'.